Chapter One, Part Two of the English Language by Logan Pearsall Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The first district of England to attain any high degree of civilization, according to the standards of that time, was the North, where Christianity and culture were introduced from Ireland, where literature and scholarship flourished, and where the local or Northumbrian dialect seemed likely to become the standard speech of england it was indeed from the angles settled here and their anglian dialect that our language acquired the name of english which it has ever since retained this northumbrian civilization however was almost utterly destroyed in the eighth and ninth centuries by a new invasion of pagan tribes from across the german ocean the Danes, who now came, like the Angles and Saxons, first to harry England and then to settle there, were near relatives of the inhabitants they conquered, and came from a district not far from the original home of the earlier invaders. Their language was so like Anglo-Saxon that it could be understood without great difficulty. So when the two races were settled side by side, and when before long they became amalgamated, it was natural that mixed dialects should arise, mainly English in character, but with many Danish words, and with many differing grammatical forms confused and blurred. As there was no literature nor any literary class to preserve the old language, the rise of these mixed dialects would be unchecked, and we can safely attribute to this settlement of the Danes a great influence on the change in the English language. It is in the districts where the Danes were settled that the English language became first simplified, so that in the process of development their speech was at least two centuries ahead of that of the south of England. But this effect was only local, and did not at first affect the language as a whole. When the Northumbrian culture was destroyed, the Kingdom of Wessex became the centre of English civilization and under the scholarly influence of King Alfred and the revival of learning he promoted, West Saxon became the literary and classical form of English, and almost all the specimens of early English that have been preserved are written in this dialect. Classical Anglo-Saxon, therefore, with its genders and its rich inflectional forms, was not affected by the Danish invasion, and had it suffered from no further disaster, England would probably have developed much as the other low German forms have developed, and we should now be speaking a language not unlike modern Dutch. But for the third time, a foreign race invaded England, and the language of Wessex, like that of Northumbria, was in its turn almost destroyed. The effect, however, of the Norman conquest though quite as far-reaching, was more indirect than that of the Danish. The Normans did not, like the Danes, break up or confuse Anglo-Saxon by direct conflict. But their domination, by interrupting the tradition of the language, by destroying its literature and culture, by reducing it to the speech of uneducated peasants, simply removed the conservative influence of education and allowed the forces which had been long at work to act unchecked, and English, 
being no longer spoken by the cultivated classes or taught in the schools, developed as a popular spoken language with great rapidity. Each man wrote, as far as he wrote at all, in the dialect he spoke. Phonetic changes that had appeared in speech were now recorded in writing. These changes, by levelling terminations, produced confusion, and that confusion led to instinctive search for new means of expression. Word order became more fixed. The use of prepositions and auxiliary verbs to express the meanings of lost inflections increased, and the greater unity of England under the Norman rule helped in the diffusion of the advanced and simplified forms of the North. We even find what is a very rare thing in the history of grammar, that some foreign pronouns were actually adopted from another language, namely the Danish words she, they, them, their, which had replaced the Anglo-Saxon forms in the North and were gradually adopted into the common speech. From the North, too, spread the use of the genitive and the plural in S for nearly all nouns, and not only for those of one declension. Although the development of English was gradual, and there is at no period a definite break in its continuity, it may be said to present three main periods of development, the old, the middle, and the modern, which may be distinguished by their grammatical characteristics. These have been defined by Dr. Sweet as, first, the period of full inflections, which may be said to last down to A.D. 1200, the period of Middle English, of levelled inflections, from 1200 to 1500, and that of Modern English, all lost inflections, from 1500 to the present time. Although the grammar of the language by the end of the Middle English period was fixed in its main outlines, there has nevertheless been some change and development since that time. Thus, the northern R, A-R-E, for B, B-E, spread southwards in the early part of the 16th century and became current towards its end, where it appears in Shakespeare and the authorised version of the Bible. And it has now, in modern times, almost supplanted the southern B in the subjunctive mood. The use of auxiliary verbs to express various shades of meaning, although it had begun in the old and developed in the Middle English period, has been greatly extended in modern times. The distinction in meaning between I write and I am writing, between the habitual and the actual present, is a modern innovation. And another modern development which expresses a useful shade of meaning is that of the emphatic present, with the auxiliary do. I do think, I do believe. As contrasted with the less emphatic I think, I believe. Both forms existed in Old English, but until the 17th century no clear distinction was made between them. As we see in the biblical phrase, and they did eat and were all filled. The 17th century saw also the adoption of the neuter possessive pronoun its, I-T-S, which is first found in 1598, but which is not used in the Bible of 1611, nor in any of Shakespeare's plays printed in his lifetime. 
the use of nouns as adjectives, the attributive noun as it is called, as in garden, flowers, railway train, etc., is a new and most useful innovation which has come into use since the period of Old English and has been greatly developed in modern times. There is nothing quite like it in any other language except Chinese, and it is a great step in advance towards that ideal language in which meaning is expressed not by terminations, but by the simple method of word position. And following also this line of development, we find a curious case in modern English when the termination used for inflection, the S of the English genitive, has become detached from its noun and used almost as a separate word. This is the group genitive, as in the King of England's son, instead of the King's son of England. And in colloquial speech, we can even use a phrase such as the man I saw yesterday's hat. Here the S of the genitive has become detached from its noun and made into a sign with the abstract character of a mathematical symbol. One of the most modern developments of English grammar, which dates from the end of the 18th century, is a new imperfect passive, as in the phrase, the house is being built, for the older, the house is building or is a building. These modern instances will prove that the development of grammar is not a matter entirely depending, as has sometimes been thought, upon historical causes or upon phonetic change. Historical accidents and the decay of terminations no doubt help in the creation of new forms, but they are not themselves the cause of their creation. Behind all the phenomena of changing form, we are aware of the action of a purpose, an intelligence incessantly modifying and making use of this decadence of sound, this wear and tear of inflections, and patiently forging for itself out of the debris of grammatical ruin new instruments for a more subtle analysis of thought and a more delicate expression of every shade of meaning. It is an intelligence which takes advantage of the smallest accidents to provide itself with new resources, and it is only when we analyse and study the history of some new grammatical contrivance that we become aware of the long and patient labour which has been required to embody, in a new and convenient form, a long train of reasoning. And yet we only know this force by its workings. It is not a conscious or deliberate, but a corporate will, an instinctive sense of what people wish their language to be. And although we cannot predict its actions, yet when we examine its results, we cannot but believe that thought and intelligent purpose have produced them. This corporate will is indeed, like other human manifestations, often capricious in its working, and not all its results are worthy of approval. It sometimes blurs useful distinctions, preserves others that are unnecessary, allows admirable tools to drop from its hands. Its methods are often illogical and childish, and in some ways it is unduly and obstinately conservative, while it allows of harmful innovations in other directions. 
yet on the whole its results are beyond all praise. It has provided an instrument for the expression not only of thought, but of feeling and imagination, fitted for all the needs of man, and far beyond anything that could ever have been devised by the deliberation of the wisest and most learned experts. When the early physicists became aware of forces they could not understand, they tried to escape their difficulty by personifying the laws of nature and inventing spirits that controlled material phenomena. The student of language, in the presence of the mysterious power which creates and changes language, has been compelled to adopt this medieval procedure, and has vaguely defined by the name of the genius of the language, the power that guides and controls its progress. If we ask ourselves who are the ministers of this power, and whence its decrees derive their binding force, we cannot find any definite answer to our question. It is not the grammarians or philologists who form or carry out its decisions, for the philologists disclaim all responsibility, and the schoolmasters and grammarians generally oppose and fight bitterly but in vain against the new developments. We can perhaps find its nearest analogy in what among social insects we call, for lack of a more scientific name, the spirit of the hive. This spirit, in societies of bees, is supposed to direct their labours on a fixed plan with intelligent consideration of needs and opportunities, and although proceeding from no fixed authority, it is yet operative in each member of the community, and so in each one of us, the genius of the language finds an instrument for the carrying out of its decrees. We each of us possess in a greater or less degree what the Germans call speech-feeling, a sense of what is worthy of adoption and what should be avoided and condemned. This, in almost all of us, is an instinctive process. We feel the advantages or disadvantages of new forms and new distinctions, although we should be hard put to it to give a reason for our feeling. We know, for instance, that it is now wrong to say much rather than many thanks, though Shakespeare used the phrase, and much happier is right, though the old much happy is wrong. And the very must in many cases take the place once occupied by much. We say a picture was hung, but a murderer was hanged often perhaps without being conscious that we make the distinction, and we all of us probably observe the modern and subtle difference between born, B-O-R-N-E, and born, B-O-R-N, the two past participles of the verb to bear, as when we write born by a slave mother, B-O-R-N-E, but born of a slave, B-O-R-N. Although few of us realise the subtle distinction between actually bringing forth and the more general notion of coming into existence, on which this difference is based. One of the most elaborate and wonderful achievements of the genius of the language in modern times is the differentiation of the uses of shall and will, a distinction not observed in Shakespeare and the Bible, and so complicated that it can hardly be mastered by those born in parts of the British islands in which it has not yet been established 
Grammarians can help this corporate will by registering its decrees and extending its analogies, but they fight against it in vain. They were not able to banish the imperfect passive, the house is being built, which some of them declared was an outrage on the language. The phrase different too has been used by most good authors in spite of their protests. And if the genius of the language finds the split infinitive useful to express certain shades of thought, we can safely guess that all opposition to it will be futile. Better guides are to be found in our great writers, in whom this sense of language is highly developed, and it is in them, if in any one, that this power finds its most efficient ministers. But even they can only select popular forms, or at the most suggest new ones. But the adoption or rejection of these depends on the enactments of the popular will, whose decrees, carried in no legislation and subject to no veto, are final and without appeal. End of chapter 1, part 2